This is a special Uncommon Sense podcast for 3 R FM with Amy Mullins. The interview you're about to hear is with journalist and scholar Leita Hong Fincher. Leita joined me in the studio to talk about her new book, Betraying Big Brother. We also discussed her previous work, Leftover Women, The Resurgence of Gender Inequality in China. And you're tuned to Uncommon Sense with Amy Mullins on 3RRR FM in Melbourne. Now I'm delighted to have with me in the studio journalist and scholar Leita Hong Fincher, who recently moved to New York but spent a great proportion of her time studying in China. And she's written her second book called Betraying Big Brother, The Feminist Awakening in China. And she also wrote a book previously, which is also fascinating, called Left over women the resurgence of gender inequality in china and later joins me now and hello there later Hello, Amy. Thanks so much for having me. Thank you for coming in and congratulations on some what really important research and writing that you've been doing. And it's great to understand better the situation of women in China and where the gender equality project is at. First up, I'd really like to highlight your first book, which I believe was based on your uh, PhD that you received. Yes. So that's about leftover women. And could you share with us this concept, which is quite commonly used and referred to in China by women who might be considered leftover and also by the government who have also been talking about this concept and pushing it really, haven't they? Sure. Well, uh, when I was doing my PhD in Beijing, I was at Beijing uh, at Tsinghua University um, and doing research actually on um, how women are shut out of the real estate market when they're buying homes. But then that's when I came across this term shengnu, leftover women, for the first time. And um, it was extremely widely used. But when I looked into it, I realized that it wasn't just floating around organically in society, that it... I looked at all the propaganda coming from official Chinese news outlets like Xinhua News and People's Daily, and I came to the conclusion that this is a propaganda campaign that's deliberately orchestrated by the Chinese government. Um, uh, Leftover women uh, officially was defined as being a woman over 27 who is single. And it was targeting urban, educated, single women. Um, And even though the official definition of the age was 27, it actually also encompassed women who are younger than that, in their mid-20s or even younger, who are not married. And it was an attempt really to shame single women and to really strongly push them into getting married, to Mm. stigmatize them. And the propaganda was everywhere, was really insulting and sexist. Um, And so that's what that term means. And at the time, I was uh, arguing that it it was uh, part of an effort to push these educated women who are naturally shying away from marriage. They don't want to marry that young anymore to get them to marry. But in recent years, I realized that that's kind of just building up to this new drive to get women to have more babies. Mm. So it's related to a really new recent phenomenon um, at the beginning of 2016 when the Chinese government passed 
uh, a new or, or enacted a new two-child policy after th- over 35 years of having a one-child policy. So they're building on this, you know, so-called leftover women uh, marriage promotion campaign. And so after the women are pushed into getting married, they're now being pushed into having two babies. So that's what that that's all about. Mm. And in terms of the reason why the government jumped on this, you say, you know, they want more children. I saw a lecture that you gave where you were referring to the fact that the government actually set out in their own terminology some of their rationale for needing an increased population and that they actually were seeking a higher quality population, a more skilled population so that they can strive and improve as a nation. Is that a new development in terms of their aim to create a more advanced society? Yeah. You know, the thing is that this is part of their long-standing tradition of eugenics in China's population planning policies that date back quite a few decades, actually. But eugenics is in part why I believe they came up with this propaganda campaign targeting or or shaming so-called leftover women starting in 2007. Mm. Um, So at the beginning of 2007, China's state council, which is like their cabinet, made a really important uh, policy announcement saying that that China faced a severe problem with the so-called low quality of its population and that it urgently needed to upgrade population quality. And so they then named a whole bunch of ministries that should be in charge of so-called upgrading population quality. Mm. And this this has been part of China's population planning policy for a long time, though. That So it's not just about controlling the quantity of the population. It's also about creating, engineering the right, uh, so-called right, ideal kind of population that is, you know, considered to be high quality, meaning they're capable of being more highly educated. They're definitely Han Chinese in mm-hmm. ethnicity. Um, I write a bit in my new book, Betraying Big Brother, about how the Uyghur Muslims in Xinjiang, for example, are considered so-called low quality. And there's been, you know, a very different kind of population planning policy directed at trying to get Uyghur uh, women, Uyghur Muslim women to have fewer children while getting Han Chinese so-called high quality women to have more children. But this has been a long-standing part of China's population planning uh, for quite a while. In 2007, they made it very explicit with this state council announcement saying we need to upgrade population quality. And so uh, so in my view, I made the argument that the government was, was targeting educated Han Chinese women who were um, increasingly pushing off marriage. They weren't marrying um, as early anymore. They, they also didn't want to have as, uh, you know, didn't necessarily want to have babies anymore. And so, uh, so it, it's very much a part of trying to sculpt the ideal kind of population. And I recall a uh, part of the book that you mentioned that the government was also using various tactics to shame women, like, for example, um, when whenever there might have been birth defects, um, they suggested it was because women waited too long. They weren't in the prime of their 
child rearing lives because they'd been off having a career or getting better educated. Right. Yes. I mean, it's completely unscientific, but there are, there continue to be to this day, all sorts of propaganda warning women that if they wait until after 30 to have babies, their children are going to have birth defects. Mm. It's part of the fear mongering that has been in practice for over a decade. I mean, I, I noticed it certainly um, really becoming much more aggressive in 2007. But today, I mean, the propaganda under this so-called, you know, the new two-child policy, it's also fear-mongering. It's targeting these educated Han Chinese women. Um, I mean, I, I saw an article in the People's Daily in the last year or two that was specifically aimed at college students, women in college, and that includes teenagers, telling them that they should hurry and get married and have two children, consider having their babies while they're still in college. And it's really uh, ridiculous on the face of it, but it's also quite frightening when you think Mm. about the capabilities, the coercion in China's uh, history of enforcing, you know, the the one-child policy. There have been so many human rights abuses that have been widely documented, like forced abortions. And um, and so uh, it, it's fundamentally all about controlling women's reproductive lives and controlling their women. So the government really views women as reproductive tools of the state. And and for many decades, you know, the government wanted women to have uh, fewer babies, and now they've done a 180-degree turn. They want uh, especially educated Han Chinese women to have two babies or, or even more. Well, obviously, part of the consequence of the one-child policy was to have more men or boys, and so therefore you've now got this unequal ratio of men to women in terms of marriage prospects. So there are so many more men looking for a partner and women, as you've shown in the various cartoons that have been around, have so many people to pick from. Why should you take so long to get married because it's so plentiful. Right. Yeah. Well, I mean, China has uh, probably the worst sex ratio imbalance in the world. I mean, it's very, very bad in India as well. And the Chinese government, according to official statistics, says that there are at least 30 million more men than women. Um, And yet the propaganda is aimed at the women saying, women, why are you being so picky in your choice of a husband? You know, get married and lower your sights. Otherwise, you're going to be too old to mm. find a husband. And and then if you put off child rearing, you know, you, you can't wait too long to have your baby. You better have your baby in your so-called best child rearing years, which is in your 20s. Otherwise, your baby's going to have a birth defect. So this kind of propaganda has been going on um, in various forms since, uh, very aggressively, since 2007. The difference today is that more and more young women are totally rejecting this propaganda. Mm -hmm. And you can also see in the official statistics on births, births are falling dramatically in China. And this, this is viewed as a really alarming problem by the Chinese government, which is really desperate to try to boost birth rates now 
um, especially among educated Han women. But mm. so far, it has failed miserably. And so we've been discussing things that are particularly overt in terms of the messaging, the discrimination and the sexism that is pretty clear and quite blunt, really. But there's also, I guess, the covert ways that culture can influence women, particularly in China. And an example, just one small example that I came across recently was this joke that has done the rounds for quite a number of years now about the fact that there are three genders in China. There is the men, the women and the women PhDs. And I had a bit of a double take when I heard it because I thought, no, you don't mean like the PhD as in a doctor, an academic, a scholar. And apparently that is a real joke, um, which is probably not particularly funny to women who have PhDs or are, are seeking to have a PhD such as yourself or, you know, myself. <laughs> right. Well, I mean, you know, that's just what sadly one example in the oh, sea of incredibly misogynistic jokes that are ultimately aimed at keeping women down. Mm. And in the Chinese government propaganda that you see in the People's Daily or Xinhua News, they specifically warn or women against pursuing their educations too long. So far, they aren't yet saying to women, don't go to college. But definitely they say that, oh, women with master's degrees or PhDs are incredibly unattractive to men. So those women can forget about ever finding a husband. Um, and actually, it does have that kind of misogyny plus the misogyny naturally occurring in society plus the deliberately powerfully orchestrated propaganda campaigns by the government um, and policies that overtly discriminate against the admission of women to a lot of university programs. Mm. You know, these women are required to, for example, score higher than men on the Gaokao, the university entrance exam. So a lot of it is just because the government wants these women who are considered to be so-called high quality, it, it doesn't want them to continue their educations. Mm. It wants them to go back to the home, get married and have babies for the good of the nation. Um, so that's sort of the background to those kinds of sexist jokes. Then you do raise that uh, as an example in the book. It did make me think, and I was reminded of a new story that happened recently. It came out from Japan that they were also doing the same thing. Men with lower exam scores getting into medical school over women who had achieved far beyond them. So it certainly seems to be not just confined to China, but also in other patriarchal societies like Japan, which is quite concerning. Well, yeah, definitely. I mean, there's a, a lot of sexism and gender inequality um, in quite a few East Asian countries, Japan, South Korea as well. Um, I mean, obviously, you know, the entire world is patriarchal. <laughs> so uh, varying degrees. Isn't it? <laughs> right. Yeah. But one of the interesting differences 
uh, between China and Japan and South Korea, for that matter, is that, you know, Japan, um, the Japanese prime minister a few years ago at least recognized that gender inequality, the low participation of women in the workforce was a real problem for the Japanese economy. And so he came up with this policy called Womenomics to try to boost uh, the number of women participating in the workforce to make it easier for them to be hired. And in fact, Japan's female labor force participation has actually risen a little bit. Um, and so, uh, so there are things, of course, it's still really, really a bad problem mm. in Japan. But it's so striking to see that, um, you know, in China, China doesn't view the shrinking female labor force participation as a problem. In fact, I, I believe that it actually wants women to retreat from the workforce, that the government uh, thinks it's more important to get women to return to the home and leave the, the jobs to the men mm. and to take on, for women to take on this very subservient role of dutiful wife and mother. So... Is it also a stabilising element, their view of creating national stability? Yes. I mean, I write about that in, in uh, both my books, actually. Mm. Um, but particularly in my new book, Betraying Big Brother, I have a chapter on China's patriarchal authoritarianism, where I talk about how basically keeping women down, subjugating women confining them or trying to push them back into these traditional roles of obedient wife and mother. That's all part of China's attempt to control the population at large, to, to exert authoritarian rule. And it's part of an effort by the Communist Party to survive, basically, because uh, the the Communist Party, particularly under the new president, Xi Jinping, is just incredibly paranoid about any potential tiny threat to its survival. And so it sees, I mean, there's been an overall assault on civil society in general over the last few years under Chinese President Xi Jinping. But it particularly sees feminism as a threat because um, the idea that women should control their own bodies, their own reproductive lives, the idea that, oh, you know, women may not want to marry and sh won't be marrying, won't be having babies, that is seen as just creating chaos and undermining Communist Party rule. So this is one of the reasons why feminism as a whole and the feminist movement, which is, which is uh, really grown remarkably over the last few years, why it's seen by the party as such a threat. Now, let's move into the main characters of this book, who are real people. I'd like to highlight this interesting tension that we've just been talking about, that the government seeking to control and um, exert dominance over the way people make choices and their behaviours. But there's also this pushback from women and uh, feminist activists. And when social media amplifies some people's messages 
often it does get to a point where the government might backtrack a bit or relinquish some control over the situation. And I was interested in the concept, not just of maintaining stability and control, but also of saving face, of being seen to still be in control and not the bad guy, which seems to be quite central to Chinese society as well, the way that it can operate in different scenarios. So what is your thought on how the government behaves in that way of, you know, taking three steps forward and then perhaps responding a bit and moving its position slightly? Yeah. I should qualify by steps forward. I mean, steps forward of taking control. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So... So in the book, I write about how, first of all, these, these women, um, the feminist I, I focus five. on the, yeah. these, the feminist five are five young women who were jailed in 2015, which is four years ago now mm. for planning to celebrate International Women's Day by handing out stickers against sexual harassment on subways and buses. And they were there was actually a much larger group of feminist activists that were planning to take part in this activity mm-hmm. in several different Chinese cities. But on the eve of International Women's Day, Chinese police uh, carried out this really sweeping round of arrests in multiple cities. Um, and then after one day, it released uh, some of the other feminist activists, and it focused on these five women in Beijing, Guangzhou and Hangzhou, and brought them all to the same detention center in Beijing. And jailed them for 37 days. What the government was trying to do then was to prevent the possibility of a large-scale feminist movement from breaking up. But but that move just totally backfired because it ended up just galvanizing the feminist community in China. Um, but if you think about... So, well, so, so, so the government ended up releasing these five women after mm-hmm. 37 days because there was this, un, this incredible global outcry. And so the women were released. Since then, there's been a very systematic crackdown on women's rights in general, women's rights activism. But if you think about what those the Feminist Five and other feminist activists in 2015 were trying to do. They were just trying to hand out stickers about sexual harassment on subways and buses. But recently, the Chinese government has actually tried to show that, oh, you know, we're not totally sexist. We do uphold gender equality. And so you see subway stations in major cities like Guangzhou and Beijing with signs about sexual harassment on subways. So basically, the government persecutes individual feminist activists. It's trying to wipe out the social movement organized by feminist activists, while at the same time it needs to co-opt the female population in general, because particularly because it's trying to get educated women in particular to have more babies. So it has to proceed very carefully. It can't just totally jail hundreds, if not thousands of feminist activists, because that would just alienate so many Chinese women and make them just furious. Another significant move by the Chinese government very recently was that it um, it announced to employers that that employers needed to stop 
asking women who are applying for jobs whether they're married and what their childbearing status is. So if that ends up being enacted in force, that could be a big deal. I I don't know if it'll be enforced, but it does show that the government is trying to show the Chinese population that it's not totally misogynistic, (laughs) while at the same time, It's treating individual feminist activists very badly, still detaining them, shutting down women's rights centers. Just last year, it banned the most prominent feminist social media account, Feminist Voices. But it's a very complicated uh, confrontation, really, between what the Chinese government is trying to do. It's trying to, to, you know, get rid of feminist activism but then more and more women on the ground are sprouting up all over China and speaking out, you know, demanding an end to all kinds of gender discrimination or an end to sexual violence. So so that's really this um, this confrontation that is going to it, it's very fraught. It's going to continue for the foreseeable future, I think. Yeah. And it seems like the internet is becoming a really big battleground because that's one way that individuals can express opinions. And there's obviously a great deal of censorship in the, the internet in China, given there's a, a massive firewall and various platforms are banned. You can't use Twitter, for example, but they have their own localized platforms to use like uh, Weibo and WeChat. And so you highlight the internet in a particular chapter I'm thinking of where you talk about various influences and one in particular, Li Yuan, who is a journalist for the Wall Street Journal in China or was built a huge following on that platform, but wasn't necessarily or wouldn't necessarily call herself a feminist, but was saying things that challenged the status quo around gender. And I'm interested in that idea as well. There are these, the feminist five we've got here who are really strong voices who have made it very clear that they're loud and proud to be feminist. And then you've got other women in China who may not use the term because it has such a negative connotation now, but are still engaging in perhaps feminist activity or thought? Yeah, absolutely. So so I would say that the vast majority of women in China would never call themselves feminist. Um, and of course, there are many reasons for that. I mean, I think all over the world, you have women, you know, in Australia and America who, you know, want equality and justice, but are hesitant to use the label of feminist. Mm-hmm. And you you have obviously in China, the Chinese government is actually has declared feminism to be a really problematic force. And in fact, um, you know, the People's Daily said, warned that Western feminism is, quote unquote, a Uh, a tool of hostile foreign forces trying to interfere in China's internal affairs. So you can understand why so many women hesitate to use that label. But looking beyond the label of feminist, there are so many, just more and more, uh, young women in China, especially urban women, especially if they've gone to college, who um, are just standing out and speaking out much more about the need for uh, equality, the need for personal dignity. You know, they want to be, uh, they want to have the same opportunities as men. They don't want to be discriminated against. They want an equal shot at getting into university or be, you know, not being sexually harassed in the workplace. 
And so, yeah, the example you referred to, uh, Li Yuan, is she's actually now at the New York Times, the Asia technology columnist. But she didn't really embrace the label for herself a feminist until very recently. Um, and yet for many years, I mean, she had this massive following of at least two million followers on uh, Weibo, China's equivalent of Twitter. And um, I mean, I always, I've known her for, for a long time. Time and I've always said, oh, you're such a great feminist. And then she didn't want to call herself that until very recently. But but she's one of those opinion makers who's really had a huge influence on women across China. And, and so this is why, um, you know, I use the subtitle Betraying Big Brother, The Feminist Awakening in China, because I really see this happening to so many young women in mm. China. And and it's not even just college-educated women. They're women factory workers are also increasingly demanding equal treatment, demanding, you know, a workplace that's free from sexual harassment. And recently there was a website for factory women's rights that was banned as well because it really is an increase in consciousness among women across classes about their own uh, rights, about needing to stand up for their rights. Yes, and you do also highlight the data around the gender pay gap widening as well, which I'm sure affects those of the working class pretty harshly. So in terms of the Feminist Five and those particular women, I've heard you refer to them and even in this book you say these women were not well known or known at all really. Maybe one who you had actually met previously before they were arrested was known to people as a feminist activist. But that since then they've obviously become fairly iconic and they've also had a great deal of monitoring still what is the situation for them? You detail really in depth, obviously having spoken to them, their experiences being detained and what happened there. So I think I'll leave people to read it because it's probably best to actually read it in full. But since they've been released, are they still under any kind of investigation or do they still feel threatened in any way in terms of their ability to engage in feminist activism? Yes, well, the Feminist Five are quite famous now. I mean, they got so much international news coverage when they were uh, jailed in 2015. The, the case against them was never formally dropped, so they are technically still criminal suspects. And, I, you know, I'm not going to give the details of what's happening with each one of no. them yeah. because they are still being monitored. And there is a very systematic crackdown on feminist activists ongoing. And uh, most recently, there was a, a very influential anti-sexual violence center in uh, Guangzhou that was forced to shut down. But the thing is, the thing about the women's rights movement is that it, it has gone way beyond those five women. Those five women were are really a symbol, I see, mm. of a much larger feminist movement or women's rights movement that is now spread. It continues to grow in different forms. The Me Too movement is one expression of that movement. I mean, it's really quite extraordinary how uh, popular that became last year. There were thousands of uh, university students and recent graduates last year who signed their real names to petitions 
demanding that universities take sexual harassment seriously, and that included men as well as women. And there are, you know, ongoing Me Too lawsuits. There, there are brave young women, you know, continuing to step forward and tell their own stories. And so this is an ongoing movement that's very hard for the government to handle. Mm. Um, yeah, but it's uh, it, it's such a multifaceted movement. So there there are you know the feminist five who are very famous, but then there's so and by and large I would say this movement is full of nameless people. Um, and by the way, the Me Too hashtag was one of the top ten most censored topics on the Chinese internet in 2018, according to this study by University of Hong Kong. You highlight there also the power of the internet and the fact that really people can engage with this issue in a range of ways personally. And also, as you say, some people have moved overseas and continued to advocate more vocally from a distance. Yes, that's, uh, I think, one of the reasons why the women's rights movement has continued is because the founding editor of Feminist Voices, um, which was uh, banned last year, this um, prominent feminist uh, social media site, is now in New York. And she's started what she calls a new battleground in the feminist movement. And so, you know, she has a lot of followers among Chinese feminists who are studying or working in the U.S. There are different groups sprouting up in other countries like the U.K. and Canada for Chinese feminists uh, abroad. And they, you know, there's this, this global exchange of ideas and people, the flow of people. And so it, so the Chinese government is not totalitarian as mm. try as it might. It can't completely wipe out, you know, all communications about women's rights or feminism on the Internet. So in spite of this incredible censorship and persecution of individual activists, you still see there there is still space there for a lot of resistance. And just finally... You do highlight in a chapter in this book the fact that gender equality as an aim and a goal is not new to China. It was actually set from on high as a really important aim in different times in history. One that's particularly clear because it's in the constitution is when Mao Zedong came to power and that was one of their core goals was also to have women take on male roles, particularly in male-dominated fields, to contribute equally to the economy and so i'm i'm just interested in that element and whether any of the women now look to those periods at all or any of those iconic women who were part of the movements whether it's early in the 20th century or in the mid 20th century and think of those kind of legacies yes certainly as you mentioned and you know i write about the, the beginning of the communist era under mao zedong um with the communist revolution in 1949 technically you know uh, there was gender e- equality, but but interestingly, the young feminist activists today look far prior to that, to the turn of the century. And one of the most influential feminist revolutionaries for them is Qiu Jin, who was a feminist revolutionary who wrote about women's emancipation, and I write about her in in the book as well. She's she's a fascinating figure who's a cross-dresser who abandoned her husband and children to go to Japan and uh, write about the emancipation of women there. And then she got involved in uh, efforts to overthrow the Qing 
empire and she was beheaded in 1905. And so originally the independent feminist activists in China today used um, one of her poetry songs as their anthem, the anthem of the movement. Then they changed it a few years ago, adopting the melody from the Broadway hit Les Miserables. And their new feminist anthem is is actually what I translate as a, a song for all women. But but they still look to figures like Tiu Jin um, and He Yinzhen, another revolutionary feminist at the turn of the century. Um, they don't look to uh, the early communist icons of gender equality because uh, th- that's just not something that they see as real feminism. Mm. And, and uh, these these activists today are completely independent of the Communist Party. And that is why they're seen as such a threat because they, they don't want, you know, they're not working with or for the Communist Party. Whereas, of course, you know, this top-down gender equality, the policies of gender equality in the early communist era were all... Uh, Fundamentally, there was still about controlling women. They wanted women to all participate in the workforce Mm. en masse, but it was all for the good of the new communist nation. And those women, you know, were still serving the communist party. And so they're Mm. not seen as heroes by these young feminist activists. It was all about economic production. Right. Yeah. Later, it's been so fascinating speaking with you and I really appreciate your time. Congratulations on this book, Betraying Big Brother, The Feminist Awakening in China, which is out through Verso, I believe. And was it picked up by Penguin? Yeah, and in Australia, I think it's Bloomsbury yeah. that's publishing it now. Um, yeah, thank you so much for having me. It's been a pleasure. Thank you.